Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm looking forward to this hour, as I always do. David Wheaton's going to be joining me in just a minute. We're going to continue in our uh, book study of Genesis and how relevant it is for today. I don't know if you've been following this series, but oh, has it been good. And we're going to talk about Genesis chapter 12 and 13 today. And then Kim Katola is going to be joining me in the second part of the hour. And I'm looking forward to catching up with the uh, most current pro-life stories that are out today, and she is going to share that with us. So that's going to be our plan. I can't wait to jump back into Genesis. So if I will take uh, 60 seconds, it'll set up just enough time to get David ready and on the air. I'll be back in a minute. Right now, you're gathering with thousands of other people. But don't worry, it's perfectly safe and encouraging. This is more than a radio station. You're part of a community sharing hope, sharing comfort, sharing encouragement. Faith Radio is here for you every day, broadcasting truth and inspiration, hope and encouragement, connecting faith to life. This is Faith Radio. Faith Radio Summer Must Read, The Bible. We're partnering with our friends at Unlocking the Bible to invite you to join us for Summer in the Scriptures. Visit MyFaithRadio.com to sign up. It's a guided tour through the entire Bible. This special journey from Genesis to Revelation will help you see how the Bible story fits together while you catch a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. Know the whole story of the Bible and sign up today at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, we are back with David Wheaton. He is host of The Christian Worldview. You can go over to his website, thechristianworldview.org. But we've been on a, a series of Genesis and how relevant it is for today. And I'm loving this series. And we're going to talk about Genesis chapters 12 and 11 with hopefully a little uh, brush up and a reminder of what we talked about in Genesis 11. David, welcome. Hey, good to be with you today, Bill. Yeah, does that sound like a plan? Genesis 12 and 13, but let's do a little reminder of what we talked about in 11. Yeah, what we talked about um, in Genesis 11 is the is the well-known story, the true story of what happened in the, the city of Babel, uh, where the people made this city and this tower, and they were attempting it to, you know, metaphorically reach into heaven. And, uh, you know, God had just told uh, when they got off the ark to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so two chapters later, you already have people like we always do. Well, we have a better idea. <laughs> and, and, and then they, sa- yeah. they said to one another, the people who made Babel, they said, come, let us. And then notice all the let us. It's yes. not let's glorify God. It's let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And, and then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the whole face of the earth. That's exactly what God told them to do, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And this is the exact 
definition of sin bill. It's it's God says one thing, the king says one thing, but I'm not going to do what the king says. I, I'm going to live for my own glory and do what I want to do instead of what the king wants me to do. So they want they want to make this city and this tower so they can live independently of God. They want to join together for themselves into one mass of humanity so they can they can be self-sufficient and they don't they don't need to be they don't need to be separate and have to be dependent upon God. And I made the point last time, and I, th- I think this really does make the point, because this is where the Bible says the world's going to end up in a globalistic-type structure, where very few unregenerate people are going to control the mass of the globe. It talks about in, in Revelation, led by this character called the Antichrist, or the Beast. And so Christians should always be very skeptical of globalistic endeavors. This is why I think a biblical worldview advocates for nationalism, uh, not in the way it's been uh, perjured, basically, that nationalism means you're a racist. No, it just means your individual countries are separation of powers uh, around the world. That creates a much less of an environment where the sin nature can do as much damage in a nationalistic environment rather than a globalistic environment as we see here at the Tower of Babel. Mm. I appreciated so much the point you kept making about the, the use of the word us over and over um, in Genesis 11, it's like, of course, they're focusing on their own plans and their own agenda and not to glorify God. That was very, uh, very memorable. So thank you for that. Yes, very much so. I mean, that's, that's the sin. That's always at the root of a sin is me, I, and us, and we. <laughs> it's when we start leaving God out of it and what his intentions and his will are, that's when we go wrong. Yeah. All right, let's jump into uh, chapters 12 and 13. Yeah, well, then there's this there's this huge—actually, just before we get into 12, there's this genealogy, and you think, well, why is this genealogy of, of one of Noah's sons? So remember, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Mm-hmm. And um, these three sons, from them, every person who's ever lived has come from, because they were the only people that came off the ark. There was no one else around. And so instead of going into the genealogies of Ham and Japheth, Right before we get into Genesis 12, which we're going to talk about, it goes into this genealogy of one of the sons of Noah named Shem. And it ends, the genealogy ends with a man named Terah, T-E-R-A-H. And who is Terah? Well, he's the father of one of the most notable figures in all of Scripture, Abraham. And so there's this transitional passage that, that takes place here. And this is setting up the huge covenant that's going to be between God and Abraham for, you know, seed and land and blessings and a nation that's going to be repeated throughout Scripture through which Christ is going to come. There's going to be blessing not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And so all these things are being set up in in this situation with the genealogy of Shem. And so you have to remember that Moses wrote the book of Genesis, inspired by God, but Moses wrote it. 700 years after this happened, right, you know, right after the Tower of Babel leading into Abraham. And so the people coming out of Egypt under under Moses, he was leading them out of Egypt, remember all the plagues and everything, that would happen 700 years later. And those people were coming into the Promised Land, is modern-day Israel, and they were probably trying to think, you know, what, what's this all about? And so Moses is giving them context on what they're about to do, that this isn't just now in this moment that we're going to march up to this land. This isn't just any land. No, this land has a history of your forefather, the first patriarch, basically, Abraham. 
And so that this so this genealogy of Shem, of which Abraham came from, is giving context to the people of Israel 700 years later to increase their faith in how God has worked and prepared them for the moment which they're about to happen have as they enter the promised land. Wow, that's just so important. Really, really good. All right, let's talk about uh, that covenant that God established. Yeah, yeah with a- Abraham. Yeah, that, well, th- this is a major part of the Bible, and this is going to do it short shrift to, to talk about sure. it for a few minutes. But we'll just point out a couple things. This passage in Genesis is 12 is really key for not only this this chapter in the Bible, but it's repeated again and again. It's an everlasting covenant between God and Abram and Abraham's, his name would change to Abraham in time, uh, to his descendants. And he said, now, now the Lord said to Abraham, he's speaking directly to him somehow. It doesn't say how, but just spoke directly to him. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. And that's important. We'll talk about it in a second to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, beginning of Genesis 12. Now, who doesn't want God to say that to them? And then he, and he concludes by saying, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And th- this is an immense promise. I mean, he, he's giving this to Abraham, who, by the way, isn't in the land of the promised land, the land of modern-day Israel. Uh, They are still—Abraham's family came from a place, his father Terah again, they came from a a city called Ur in southern Iraq. And so what they did is, all of a sudden, Terah, the father, who wasn't, by the way, a believer in God, he was an idol worshiper, the, the Bible says, but he has this idea, and no one—it doesn't say why, but he wants to go over to the land of Canaan, which is the problem, which would become the, the promised land where the Canaanites live. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't go just directly west across the desert from southern Iraq to modern day Israel because it just, you know, you're you're not driving a U-Haul truck and, you know, or flying over there. I mean, you gotta walk with all your herds and your families and you got tents and I mean this is a major undertaking. People didn't travel like this unless you were a trader back then. And so they have to go up the Euphrates River and they stop in a place called Haran, a city called Haran. Well, Terah, the father of Abraham, dies there, and now Abram gets this command from God to go from Haran, this town of Haran, now down southwest into the Promised Land. And this is the first time in Scripture where all of a sudden God is establishing through Abraham four things. He's going to give him many offspring, seed, including the person of Jesus Christ is going to come from Abraham. That's huge. He's going to give them actual land. Uh, in in this in this land of Canaan, he's going to make of him a great nation. And then fourth thing he promises is they're going to be blessing upon him, and they're going to be cursing upon those who curse Israel. And so the, the two things I think are, are so relevant for us today from this particular covenant is that this is incredible incredibly important to Israel and the Jews because it's partially been fulfilled, but it's going to be even more fulfilled in the future. So Jews can look to this and say, look at the promise that God made to Abram 7,000 years or 5,000 years ago and say there's still future fulfillment for this. There's still a covenant in place. Those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. And that is laid out throughout history, actually. But it's also important even to non-Jews, just regular believers like you and me, Bill, because Abraham was the, the first person to be spoken of in Scripture as he's the model for our our faith, 
Remember it said he believed God and was reckoned unto him to righteousness? Mm-hmm. In other words, he showed the way for how one can be saved, whether Jew or Gentile. It wasn't through our good works trying to earn favor with God, but it was simply upon believing in God's Word, believing in the message of God, and that's what Abram did, and that's why he's the father of faith. Well, that's fantastic. I just love where we're going with this. Let me take a, a very short break. David Wheaton, of course, is my guest, and we're in our series of the book of uh, Genesis, and always you can go to David's website, thechristianworldview.org. We'll take a short break and be right back. David Wheaton, enjoying a series on the book of Genesis. We're in chapters 12 and 13. Um, All right, where did we leave off, David? Well, we were talking about how Abram's family, how how the Jews ever got involved, how they ever came to modern-day Israel, how they got into the Promised Land as a result of this, this covenant. The covenant is basically just an agreement that God makes uh, with Abram, that he's going to going to bless him and multiply him and a nation, you're going to get land. You have to keep in mind that you know, Abram had never been to modern-day Israel at this point. He was from this land of Ur, which is in southern Iraq, and they travel his father. And that's another interesting thing that's so relevant for us today, because what gave his father, who was an idol worshiper, the idea to go over to Canaan? Yeah, good point. Uh, that, that makes no sense. And so it just shows how God's sovereignty, how he or orders things in the world, his providence is even worked through non-believers, through idol worshipers. Like, you know, why, why would he do that? It wasn't like he wasn't given the promise. It was his son who was given the promise at this halfway point over there in this, in this city called Haran, uh, in, in, which is in modern-day Turkey. So they went from southern Iraq to Turkey, stayed there for many, many years, and then Abram gets this, this command from God to go into the promised land, this promise of blessing and nation and family and seed and all that through which Christ would come. And this is an immense, immense moment uh, in the history of the world, really, but particularly for the Jews and for really all who would believe, as I mentioned in the last segment. You know, Abram's 75 years old now. He's in this, this city called Haran in Turkey. He's, he have, he's married to Sarah. They have no children. And he's getting these promises of great seats. So you think, well, I mean, really, what is he going to believe? That many people are going to come for me. My wife doesn't. We don't even have any kids. Right. We're 75 years old. We're going to a land we have. I mean, it just shows the relevance for today is we need, we need to trust God at, at his word. Even when things seem just impossible and don't make sense in our human minds, you know, God's ways are just so much higher than our ways. His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. He's ordaining things. His sovereignty is beyond what we can even comprehend. And so he gets this command, uh, and they start traveling down uh, into the promised land. And uh, then things begin to happen. You have to remember that even though they went down there, Abraham and his family at this point, and by the way, there was one other member of the family who was notable in Scripture, a guy named Lot. That mm-hmm. was that was, that was was Abraham. We're going to talk a lot more about him coming up. But Abraham's nephew, Lot, uh, Lot's father, of course, was Abraham's brother, but that, that his father died in Haran. And so Abraham took over Lot and how important Lot would be as they both all came down into the land, but they weren't given the land. God makes his promise to him, Abraham, his son Isaac, 
his son Jacob, all the sons of, of Jacob that journey down to, to Egypt over the hundreds of years, this promise of having this land, they never owned a piece of the land until until Joshua and the, and the Exodus happened and they march into the promised land. So it's just a reminder that God makes promises to us, and they aren't necessarily fulfilled in our lifetime. Sometimes we don't get to see, and that's where the faith comes in. We trust God at His Word, trusting that He will bring it to pass in His own timing. Yeah, it's such a great point, and an important reminder, David, that uh, we trust God in His timing and not try to always control and orchestrate what we think the outcome should be. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Because they come down, they don't even own the land. Yeah. He's kind of wandering around in the land. He makes an altar, makes the first altar in the land, which was significant, kind of planted his stake in the ground that he's a follower of Jehovah. So that was important. But then they end up going down to Egypt. Uh, there's a great famine uh, in the land of the, of the promised land. So they go down to Egypt. And, th- and this is an interesting story, too, that why we can really trust the Bible is true. I mean, here's Abraham, the father of faith, this great patriarch, hero of the Bible. Uh, we look back, I mean, all of the New Testament you see even Abraham look back to, the father of those who would have true saving faith without works. Well, there's a story at the end of um, Genesis 12 where they've gone down to Egypt because of the uh, the the famine. And what does Egypt, what does Abram do when he gets down there? Well, he tells Sarah, his wife, says, when we get there, make sure you don't tell anyone that you're my wife. Tell people that you're my sister so that I'm not going to be killed to have Pharaoh take you into his harem. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you, you see the, the, the sinful side of Abraham here. You know, every, every figure in Scripture who's elevated someone like Abraham is, is, is shown to have to shown his sinful side, too. I mean, you, usually books don't do that. Mm-hmm. They, they, don't, they don't show the negative side, the sinful side of a man, and that's what he did. And Pharaoh did end up taking uh, uh, Sarah into his harem, but shortly thereafter, God sent plagues upon him and his people, and he soon discovered that this wasn't just Abraham's sister, this was actually his wife. And then the last verse of Genesis chapter 12 says, Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted Abram away with his wife and all that belonged to him. So you have at the beginning of this chapter, Bill, you have this great promise of God that he what he's going to do for Abram. And Abram believes God, and he goes down into the promised land. He continues down into Egypt. But the end of the chapter is, well, Abram's already messed up. <laughs> I mean, he's being ignominiously uh, you know, sent out of Egypt. And it's a good lesson for us to think that, you know, God makes these promises and we can be doing well and these great promises of God and we believe him by faith. But we need to be careful because we are fallen. We are susceptible uh, to going the wrong way. And that's exactly what happened here uh, to Abram at the end of this chapter. Well, David, let's talk a little bit about Lot now, too, and talk about the ways in which Abraham and Lot sort of agreed to part ways. Yeah, this was very interesting. This is now in Genesis 13. So we've gone from Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel and then the the genealogy of Shem to Genesis 12, which is this covenant between God and Abram, and then ending with Abram lying about, you know, who Sarah was mm-hmm. when he goes down to Egypt. Now we get to Genesis 13. Now they're they're back up in the promised land and again, they don't have no ownership in the land. They're just, they're both herdsmen. They're both there. And it turns out that God is blessing them already. And they have huge, and they're wealthy, and they have huge flocks and so forth. And there begins to be strife uh, between Abram and Lot and between their herdsmen. And so Abram says, 
you know, we need to separate from each other because it's, it's, it's just, there's the land isn't big enough where we are. We need, you need to go one way, I'll go another. And the interesting part of this bill is that Abram, the uncle actually gives the choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about a humble guy. No kidding. He gives a choice to, to, to his nephew and says, you know, if the whole, please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If you choose to the right, then I will go to the left. And so that's a pretty unusual thing for someone like an uncle to do. And then it says this very interesting passage that I think is a lesson here for all of us. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw all the valley of the Jordan River, that it was well watered everywhere. And it says it was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go down to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. Mm -hmm. Thus they separated from each other. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Yeah. <laughs> Last verse of the chapter. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. And this goes to the point of how important our decisions are in life. You know, life is really just one decision after another, right? Big mm-hmm. decisions, little decisions. Am, am I going to get out of bed today? That's a little decision, maybe. What am I going to wear today? But there are much bigger decisions than that. And Lot had a choice. He had a decision to make here, which way he was going to go. And he chose the fertile ground, but he either didn't understand or didn't care to understand that he was going to be moving himself and his family into a place that, as the Bible says, was exceedingly wicked, as we're going to find out in, in coming up chapters in Genesis, in Genesis, where God would eventually destroy these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the, the, the point for us to take away here today is, yeah, we can make choices in life, but make sure we consider something beyond just the obvious thing of the obvious benefit of good land, so to speak, to grow our crops consider what the culture and the people and the influence of that kind of area is going to have on us and our family. Yeah. It's safe to say, David, the grass was greener on that side towards towards Sodom. um, Very much. Yeah. And that's an important lesson. And this is such a great uh, study. I just love that you have um, been doing this with me. I'm just loving this. I'm, I'm loving it as well. There's just so much here. I mean, you just look at this today, even, and you think, 5,000 years ago, how can so many life lessons for us in 2020 America be gleaned from all that took place back in the time of Abraham and Lot? It's just amazing. In chapters 12 and 13, there is a verse basically says, so he built an altar to the Lord and then called on him. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking what that must have been like in Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really important. And uh, because the whole world was not, you know, they didn't live in a Christian culture back then. Abraham was standing on his own and worshiping the the God, the creator of the universe. Spectacular. David, thank you so much for being on the show. I look forward to chatting with you next time. I will too, Bill. Thank you. Great work, my friend. Thank you. You too, Bill. Yep. David Wheaton has been my guest. You can go to thechristianworldview.org, and I hope you do. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Kim Cattola is my guest.
Welcome back to the show. Kim Cattola is my guest. You know her from her book, Cradle My Heart, and her radio show, Finding God's Love After Abortion. She's a pro-life advocate and just a great friend of Faith Radio. We just love her. Kim, welcome. Hey, Bill. Nice to talk with you again. No kidding. So, boy, there's a lot of stuff in the news right now regarding pro-life issues. And if I can start with this uh, this thing that's going on in Minnesota, where these uh, doctors are trying to uh, sue to stop surgical abortions in Minnesota during the pandemic. Well, it's been a state-by-state issue where some states have said, no, abortion is elective. It's an elective procedure, and it's not health care. And then others have said, no, it is essential health care. And so abortion businesses are opened or closed according to what the governors have ruled. But in Minnesota, Governor Walls said it sided with the abortion industry who lobbied to stay open. And in the face of that, some health care professionals have now uh, mounted a suit. We just got news of this actually this week. And it's a coalition of doctors, Minnesota citizens, and a pro-life group suing the state's abortion providers to stop surgical abortions during the pandemic. And I, I think, you know, part of the concern that they voiced is that this is an elective procedure, which means that it's taking personal protective equipment away from hospitals, clinics, ERs, doctors, nurses, and others. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I don't know where things stand really with the shortages on that, but that's most definitely a valid concern. And, you know, there, and it's also talking about the fact that these elective procedures take this equipment, time, personnel away from the front lines of trying to stop the virus. So the Thomas More Society, which is a national nonprofit uh, law public interest firm, uh, is taking this on for them. And so the file, they filed the lawsuit late last month in U.S. District Court in St. Paul. Kim, are there um, any states that have said no, no abortions during this time? Uh, you know, I, I wish I had better information yeah, for you okay. as of today, but no, there have been some. There have been some that have said absolutely not. This is not essential health care. And, you know, the the irony is that certain life-giving procedures, such as different, you know, cancer treatments and so on, are deemed elective in the health care coding system. And those folks cannot um, receive that care while, in the name of life, abortion businesses are allowed to stay open. So it's... um, it's it strains common sense. It's not logical, but then when it comes to abortion, it seems like very little is. Mm-hmm. And another uh, topic uh, that's very hard to talk about is um, the medical research that goes on with aborted fetuses. I know there's been a well, little bit of a slowdown during this time on that, hasn't there? Yes, well, because President Trump has upheld the the law, which says you may you can't. You can't traffic in fetal remains. And where are you going to get fetal remains other than from abortion businesses? And as was demonstrated in the evidence presented by the Center for Medical Progress way back in 2015, uh, that's exactly what abortion providers are doing, at least Planned Parenthood. They had abundant evidence that Planned Parenthood was doing that with STEM Express and the other um, cell you know, fetal tissue procurement labs. And um, so President Trump, at the urging of Marsha Blackburn, the senator from Tennessee and others, said, look, we're not going to we're not going to fund that. 
And, you know, Bill, I, I mean, there are people who would take an anti-scientific view, and by that I mean science tells us that life begins at conception. So, and if, if, if you want human fetal tissue for human vaccines, what is that but a human life, right? Mm-hmm. That is the source of those tissues, right? But for the ethics of it, people have said, well, you're, you're, you know, you're denying people life-giving treatment by denying them, you know, the technology to develop vaccines using fetal tissue. And uh, I, I just, maybe we've discussed this before, but if you go back to the Nuremberg trials after World War II, they said that the Nazi medical research could not enter the canon, so to speak. That it was not usable because the tests were uh, were conducted without the consent of the test subjects. Dr. Mengele and all the Nazi doctors didn't ask these people, may we experiment on you? And no fetus was ever able to give consent that their, you know, stem cell lines would be used in vaccine research. It's, for me, a very straightforward ethical answer that this ought not to be allowed. And President Trump has upheld it. And um, so right now, um, there are people who are saying that, you know, the pro-life community is very insensitive to the needs for, you know, stem cell research and fetal stem cell uh, procurement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, and actually, you know, Vice and others have taken a very strong stand against it, Bill, saying that President Trump's anti-abortion policies are hurting coronavirus vaccine research, right? Well, excuse me, what that headline and what the article fails to point out is that these are human beings from whom these cells and these tissue, this tissue is being harvested. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know about you, I don't know about anybody else listening, Bill, but I think for us as a culture to say that we need to harvest the bodies of dead children to mm. advance medical research or to save ourselves from a pandemic, there has to be a better way. Yeah. Our science and our and our engineering and our, our scientific minds, our medical minds have to be able to do better than that. Mm-hmm. Kim, what is our history in the United States on fetal tissue research? I mean, didn't didn't well, President Reagan put the yes. put a moratorium on yes. that? Yeah, he did. He oh. did. But you know, every time the uh, balance of power shifts oh, sure. along party lines, new rules are written and new things are tried. And so, um, you know, some some have argued that look, fetal cells are present in almost every vaccine because it's been there as part of a um, sort of a mother culture. No pun intended there, but you know, sort of the like the, what am I thinking of? Like sourdough bread, how you need the mother, <laughs> right. right? You need you need the culture before yes. you can start new sourdough. Well, so some fetal cell lines have been in use in vaccines since the 1950s, and those were most likely from aborted tissue as well. However, the Roman Catholic Church and other ethicists have said that because they have been in use at, for so long, and because um, you know, the the advances already are being deployed. It is not unethical to use the vaccines with the historic lines, but harvesting new lines from the remains of aborted children today, they have said most clearly is unethical. Mm-hmm. So what is uh, Planned Parenthood's latest um, 
position now? Are they still in the, they're still buying and selling or are they, didn't they have a deal with some company for a whole lot of money? I, I'm trying to recall yeah, what I remember yeah, I reading. Think, I think they are. And, you know, so they, and, you know, they're, they're somewhat quiet right now during the pandemic. Okay. But if you, um, if you think about the fact that way back <laughs> last year and even earlier, last year they promised $45 million in the 2020 election cycle. So who knows how much of that has already been deployed for messaging, wow. right? And right, I mean, and it goes to the, you know, the point that we always have to remember with them, that they're, they're a slush fund for the Democrat Party. Mm-hmm. They, they take donations and then they turn around and, you know, um, excuse me, yeah, they take, uh, or they, they take donations, they turn around and, and give some of that money to Democrat candidates to vote their way. And uh, it's not the only institution that does that. I think um, there have been some invest- investigations that show that PBS favors Democrat voices mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, that their funding is pretty much um, – happening along the same lines but um yeah they they continue well the latest in the in the courts on the cases of planned parenthood and the fetal remains um the center for medical progress and operation rescue lost uh their court cases but uh, which mean and part of that was because there was no jury and part of it was because um they wouldn't allow the evidence to be presented uh as to what had been gathered undercover uh, showing the Planned Parenthood executives making these trades and make, having conversations about the fact that it's business as usual for them to traffic in fetal remains. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, though, there's, a, there's also a pretty sizable group of pro-life Democrats that still exist. Nope. Well, maybe I lost you. You still there, Kim? I'm here. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, there still is a oh. pretty sizable group of pro-life Democrats that exist. Do and I'm not sure, you know, where they stand on this particular issue. Yeah. But I know that they're working for changes to the platform of the party so that there's possibility of a pro-life candidate being a Democrat, which really couldn't happen right now. Yeah, there's there's no way. I don't think they're even. Well, well I shouldn't say that, but if you want to run for. Uh, Democrat on the Democratic side, you have to be pro-life. I mean, uh, pro-choice. Yes. Yeah. Bernie Sanders made that abundantly clear when he was still a candidate. Well, he did, so didn't he? The question. He did. He said it's not possible. It, it's just it's a non-starter. Yeah. It's a was, non-negotiable for our party. Yeah. That was, that was uh, yet there's still a sizable number of uh, uh, pro-life Democrats. And I don't know where they go or how they reconcile with their party. Well, I... Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I guess, working for change from within, Yeah, you know, because of some of the other platform issues that are very, very important to them. Uh, and I respect many. Uh, I know some personally. Charlie Camosi is one who is, I think, teaches ethics at Fordham University. He's written on the connection between um, animal rights and human rights. And he is a pro-life Democrat, and he's active in trying to get his party to be more reasonable about abortion. Um, so they exist. Uh, it's got to be a very lonely road to walk, I would think. Yeah. All right. Uh, let me take a little break. Uh, Kim Gatola is my guest, and 
If you have uh, any questions or comments you'd like to make, let us know what they are. 877-933-2484. Love to hear from you. Otherwise, we'll be right back with Kim. Kim Katola, and we are uh, chatting about pro-life issues. And I was thinking, Kim, we were chatting. I was ch- chatting with Rebecca during the break about when more states are saying, "All right, we're not performing abortions during this time." Are there um, are people trying to push these drugs on these young these young women that are trying to uh, end their abortion? Yes, and then that's been happening ever since Trump's election. Okay. People, you know, were sounding the alarm. Oh, you're going to lose your birth control, remember? You're oh, going to yeah. lose your abortions. Right. So there have been groups that have been trying to um, advertise and market and also just act as, you know, advocates and activists online to help women do the DIY abortions. But, um, you know, and I expect we'll see more of that. Um, by the way, the state, the only state that has outright restricted abortion due to the pandemic is Arkansas. And the states where it's being battled right now include Utah, Louisiana, Alabama, uh, Indiana, and West Virginia. Texas put in a ban, and then uh, the abortion advocates went to the legislature, and I believe that ban was overturned. So, yeah, and Bill, the thing is, this is not a benign procedure. You just take some pills, and it starts right. your you start your cycle again. Mm-hmm. No, that it, it's extremely traumatic. Anyone who saw the movie Unplanned uh, with Abby Johnson's depiction of that experience showed that it was much more traumatic than a surgical abortion. Oh. And it's very isolating, and it can be very dangerous, especially for younger girls who maybe haven't told anyone that they are pregnant, haven't told anyone that they're taking these drugs. And they have no idea what amount of bleeding is normal. And mm-hmm. there will certainly have been deaths from from the uh, abortion pills. Mm-hmm. There was this case reported in India this week of a woman who bled out. Um, and it's, again, v- very, very traumatic and not necessarily any safer than a surgical abortion. So mm-hmm. I hope that anybody who's thinking of that um, or advocating for that would really look into what it actually does to the bodies of the women and, of course, of the children affected by that drug. And, you know, support a local pregnancy center instead. Not everyone can parent, Bill. I understand that in every pregnancy. But adoption is a, uh, you know, is a choice everyone can live with. And the alternative of uh, destroying a pregnancy and then having to deal with the remains in your own home is something some women say they will never get over. So, Kim, if a woman takes starts this process of taking these medications and after one pill the first day has a regret, is there a way to undo that? Yes. Abortion pill reversal is being... Uh, of course, it's it's controversial because, of course, the people who stand to profit from abortion don't want someone to just be able to take a pill and stop the process, right? right? Um, so, but but there's good science showing that it absolutely can work, and that it has worked, and there are many many testimonies for women who, um, you know, 
took that second didn't took took the abortion reversal pill rather than the second dose of the abortion medication and um have healthy thriving children today as a result and so abortion reversal is something again that I think um why should this be controversial I mean abortion is irrevocable it's a decision you can never undo and it's oftentimes made under extreme pressure under extreme emotion and under extreme uh, lack of social support. If a young woman commences a medication abortion and then gets the support that she needs or has a change of heart, who would not be in favor of her being able to reverse that decision safely and with another medication? Mm -hmm. Uh, There are many pregnancy centers that uh, are helping with this. And if not helping, they, you know, they, they can help provide knowledge and they're all very knowledgeable about abortion pill reversal from a medical, again, Bill, from a medical and scientific point of view. Mm-hmm. All right, Kim, here's a disturbing sentence. I will read it. Planned Parenthood will spend $45 million on the 2020 elections, the nonprofit's biggest electoral expenditure in its history, according to CBS News. Yeah, well, and, the, you know, the good news is the Susan B. Anthony list um, is going to spend $41 million. So all we need is, what, uh, $4 million from your listeners to the Susan B. Anthony list to even the score bill. Okay? Yeah, that is, that's a worthy fight. You know, it, it, it is. Well, and so they're, go- they're zeroing in on nine states with their $45 million bill. So they're looking at uh, Minnesota is one, uh, but also Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. So two of those I know have faith radio outlets, Minnesota and Wisconsin, I believe. And, you know, they, they, these are considered battleground states mm-hmm. where the state legislators, le- legislatures that is, have been, you know, effective in limiting uh, abortion access or um, abortion in their states. And so uh, Louisiana is, a, of course, a real battleground because um, – Louisiana has one of these laws in place that requires a doctor who performs abortion to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. Mm-hmm. It's a reasonable law, and if anyone is concerned about women's safety while they're having abortions, no one should object to this law. But um, in Louisiana, they, they've had to battle it and battle it and battle it with Planned Parenthood and all the political muscle that they bring to that. So, you know, I, I think that... Um, it, it can be a cause for dismay to think about how deep their pockets really are, mm-hmm. um, especially because they're receiving a lot of that money as taxpayer money, you know, uh, that, that it's coming to them through Medicaid, uh, which there have been longstanding allegations of their overbilling of Medicaid, but also just, you know, the fact that they they operate as a political action committee and a, a voters' rights organization and a health care uh, entity all in one with all of that money commingled. Uh, they will say that it's not, but of course it is. And so um, Planned Parenthood votes, they say, is distinctly financially and structurally uh, apart from Planned Parenthood's healthcare organization. And that's according to CBS News and to the Planned Parenthood talking points. But um, those funds are all of a piece. Mm-hmm. And all of the entities, uh, you know, cooperate, of course, with one another. So, mm-hmm. 
Kim, do you know how the pregnancy centers are doing during this shutdown? Well, uh, many of them are still open. And I think, you know, I know that some that I support had did um, virtual banquets this spring. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had any of those virtual events to replace the live events. Oh, sure. <laughs> for any nonprofits or other organizations you've been involved with. But um, they're, they're carrying on and they are seen as essential services. So many of them have kept their doors open um, through the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I think that with, with people home and, you know, having lots of time, <laughs> we may be seeing a lot of pregnancies in the very near future. Yeah. And the pregnancy, <laughs> pregnancy health centers are there. The COVID babies. Be, yeah, well, they're, they're there to be sure that women have a real choice, an actual choice, and not just someone who wants to, you know, coerce them or profit from the termination of their pregnancies and the death and destruction of their children. Mm-hmm. What has uh, been the news with our fighter, David Delayden? Well, he's got a lawsuit. He's suing Kamala Harris. He's suing uh, Xavier Bacera, the Attorney General of California. He just announced this lawsuit this week, and he's seeking a jury trial uh, because, you know, in that case, they would have to be able to look at the evidence that he gathered. When the the judge ruled against them, uh, his Center for Medical Progress, Mm -hmm. um, nobody was allowed to hear the evidence that he was accused of having gathered illegally. And that was the whole point of the case was that he had, um, you know, gathered this information illegally by masking his identity. But it's the only case he charges in California's history where um, California has not allowed undercover investigative journalism to be considered as valid and as covered and protected by law. And so the content of the video footage, the, the judge's rationale was that uh, it's this is too inflammatory and people are going to uh, it's going to put abortion providers at risk they're already subject to violence from unhinged individuals they didn't use that word but of course that's what their argument is but just think of it bill is the reality of what it is that you're doing every day incites people to right. violence right is <laughs> the problem yeah. the exposure is the problem what you're doing every day yeah so, so he's countersuing, or he's suing at, at this point, uh, trying to, and he's naming names, as I say, Kamala Harris, for her individual capacity as California Attorney General when she filled that role, um, because, you know, she prevented any investigation into fetal trafficking, uh, fetal remains trafficking, and there were, there char- he's charging that there were cronies in the courts who helped her with that and that they were not treated fairly when they were sued for investigative journalism. So we'll see. And I, and I, for one, will be praying that they will prevail because I think what he did was extremely important. I, I don't think anything else in my memory recently in my lifetime has done more to bring to light. Uh, you know, God's word says, have nothing to do with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead mm-hmm. expose them. And he did so at great personal risk. And they're facing judgments of, you know, a million dollars plus for having lost the court cases that they've lost so far. So I think they're they're all deserving of our prayers. Yeah, his undercover videos were so disturbing. And it was just business as usual. It was right? business the, as usual. Yep. Right, right. And, you know, Bill, I, I just, while we're talking about God's Word, while I'm talking about God's Word, 
I just, you know, the other day in my devotions, um, there was that section of the scriptures about the triumphal entry and how the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, well, the children are shouting Hosanna. You know, you should stop them. And he said, have you not read that out of the mouths of babes, the Lord, you know, God has ordained praise. And he was referring to Psalm 8. And I think it's worth a, a minute to take a look at this verse because you know, we know these verses, Psalm 8, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the opening of this psalm. But the, then it goes on to say, you have set your glory in the heavens, and through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. I mean, think about this, mm-hmm. Bill. The, the Lord ordaining praise from children and infants, some translations say babies, and we know in God's Word there's no difference between a fetus, a baby, a child, you know, an infant, True. a child. yeah. And if God created them to praise Him, it's for our benefit as a stronghold against our enemies and to silence our foes yeah. and, and to, you know, to avenge. and. Think about what we have cost ourselves yeah. by, by making them disposable. Yeah. Kim, thank you so much. I wish you would have started singing earlier in the interview. That wraps up <laughs> all of our time. Kim Patola has been my guest. Thanks for uh, being with me today. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.